environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. Today's guest is Benedict Boisseron. Uh, Benedict was born in Paris, France, to a French mother and a French Caribbean father. After a master's degree in English literature from Paris Denis Diderot University, she joined the PhD program in the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Michigan, where she is now a professor of Afro-American and African Studies. She is the author of Creole Renegades, Rhetoric of Betrayal and Guilt in the Caribbean Diaspora, which was awarded the Nicolas Guilen Outstanding Book Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association in 2015. Her most recent book, Afro Dog, Blackness and the Animal Question, draws on debates about black life and animal rights to investigate the relationship between race and the animal in the history and culture of the Americas and the Black Atlantic. She is currently at work on a memoir in essays about black freeganism. Welcome, Benedict. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's really, really great to talk to you. So we'll go straight into today's root words to get the conversation started. Benedict's book Afrodog marks an important contribution to both critical animal studies and post-colonial studies. The book was published in 2018, but of course the events of 2020 have highlighted and affirmed the deep and ongoing need for work that helps us to understand and confront anti-black racism. In this context, to honour and further the renewed visibility and support for the Black Lives Matter movement, today's root word is matter. In modern usage, the word has two primary meanings. As a noun, matter first invokes the material or substance that a thing is made from, whether literally or figuratively. Physicists talk of dark matter, the material stuff of the universe that we cannot see, and we might talk about the subject matter of a book, or declare something to be a matter of fact. As a verb, to matter is to be significant or important, and this is, of course, the sense invoked in the phrase Black Lives Matter. To quote from the Black Lives Matter website, the movement is intended as an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, their contributions to this society, and their resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Indeed, the mattering or the assumed not-mattering of black lives is often inscribed in the material conditions of people's existence, in socio-economic inequality, in reduced opportunities, in increased mortality rates to COVID-19 and other illnesses, and in the erasing of their voices and histories. But where does this word matter come from? The word has an interesting and perhaps unexpected origin. The classical Latin materia referred to wood, timber or building material, and this word in turn descended from another very familiar and familial word, the Latin mater, M-A-T-E-R, meaning mother. The OED suggests that this naming of matter as mother referred to the way that the that a trunk of a tree, the building matter or timber in question, was regarded as the mother of its offshoots, thereby rooting our understanding of matter in both maternal and botanic origins. 
this seems significant for both material eco-critics and for supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Matter as mother recognises that things don't spring out of nowhere, but that there is always a history of genealogical hereditary origins and roots into material pasts. Matter as mother is not the inert, lifeless resource of colonial capitalism. It is the generative and living ground from which we are all born. Matter as mother implies a relationship of reciprocity and care. A mother always knows what is important, knows what matters. And to see matter as mother involves remembering the histories that gave birth to the material conditions of the present. And so with that thought of remembrance and material origins in mind, Benedict, perhaps I can begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the central ideas of Afrodog, and particularly how you see the links between historic racism and ideas of an animality, and how this history has gone on to shape and determine our present context. Thank you, Gemma. Well, uh, I will say I will start by talking about exactly that, the genealogy of uh, of something that matters for us today. And um, we, it all begins with slavery. And the fact that the Americas and North America also has started on the foundation of a slavery system, economical system, has a deep impact today in what uh, Sadia Hartman would call the aftermath of uh, slavery, the afterlife of slavery, which is uh, today. So the way that the economy of slavery works is uh, through a divide, human and um, animal divide. The way to justify black slavery and to say that what is not Western white is in a spectrum of, uh, in a spectrum of humanity, farther away of, from what is human. So coming from that, the fact that the black subject during slavery was not completely human, uh, not to mention the, the legal representation of uh, three-fifths, which means that only three slaves counted out of five for uh, demographic reasons to, to count the population in the South. But also just the word itself, chattel, um, that refers to the black slave. And the fact that chattel comes from uh, the roots, the etymological roots of chattel is capital, which means property, what one owns, but it also has ramifications with cattle, what it is to be an animal. So when we think of uh, Douglas as well, uh, Frederick Douglas, who really insisted and underscored how black slaves were accounted for in the slavery era, meaning uh, valued right next to the cattle, any kind of animals, we understand the modern ramifications of that kind of economy, social economy, historical economy. So today, I think that we still see from a legacy of the way that the black subject was valued and counted and accounted for in America and in the Americas. And this is what Afrodog is looking, is looking at, as actually, historically speaking, from the slavery era to the Black Lives Matter era. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's, I, I'm, I'm curious, too, because you pointed out, right, that there's – I think there's a, a – uh, I don't want to maybe call it a long tradition, but there, there's a, a clear link between the ways that that um, slaves were, were very much treated like cattle and and kind of you know um, just dehumanized in that particular way. Uh, so I'm really curious how you you found the the kind of link or the move then from from thinking about um, that idea of cattle into your work specifically with with dogs. 
So that, again, if you go back to um, the genealogy of um, the accountability of what it's, it is to be black, it's often associated with the dog and not just blacks, also for Native Americans. So we're going back to Bartolome de las Casas in the 1500s who wrote a book about um, the way that the Spanish conquistadors um, treated Native Americans. And the way they treated them was by uh, trying to curb their rebellion or their defiance with animals, launching animals after them. So what's interesting with Bartolome de las Casas, and not many people talked about it, is that he was advocating for Native Americans, for the life of Native Americans. And for him, his solution was actually to try to use Africans instead of Native Americans, saying that maybe Africans, Blacks, would be more compliant to forced mm. labor and exploitation. But so now you go from Native Americans in the Americas to Black slaves, and you see that the same thing happened. Um, like masters, slave owners would use dogs against runaway slaves um, to uh, incite them not to run away, actually. And you have images and stories in historical accounts and also fiction, because it's in everybody's collective mind of dogs devouring blacks. And then you move on to the 1960s, and you see again the use of dogs by the police against um, civil rights rioters. And then you move to the Ferguson protest in 2015, and you see the same thing, and then you go to Dakota pipeline protests, and you see that also uh, God used slaves against Native Americans for the protests. And the idea of, of course, dogs come back and came back very recently with Donald Trump, um, arguing that um, maybe we should use um, vicious dogs against uh, the rioters. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, has anything changed? Is this just, you know, is, is Trump's threat and, and the use of, you know, there, there has been dogs used in the, in the um, policing of the 2020 process, protests. Has anything changed since then? Is it a different situation or is this just, you know, history repeating itself? It's, it's what I see as a sort of atavistic reaction because of our history, um, the heaviness of the history that when it comes to repression in America, the dog always comes to mind. So when Trump makes those types of comments, it's a, a subtext to go back to the history of how blacks should be treated and, um, or rioters or protesters should be treated when they claim um, to be rights for blacks. So it's a form of, interestingly enough and ironically enough, what Trump was doing is dog whistling and going back mm. to the many eras in our history where that's how we should be treating um, blacks who are defiant, who are rebellious, exactly like when they used to run away and, they, and dogs were launched after them. Yeah, that's that's horrible and, and tragic, but... Also, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense and just, especially just in, in terms of the context of the history of this country. And it's just, it's just really unfortunate that, um, that, that things like that and those, those perceptions and, um, immediate responses have to, have to kind of be like that. Um, and, and I think that it also kind of, um, it maybe connects to a little bit with what you were saying, um, 
specifically uh you know that the Amy Cooper video um in which you know she was calling the police and um you know kind of holding her dog up in in very you know particular ways and dragging it along um and the the outrage that people had for how she was treating that dog um in maybe some ways kind of overshadowed the outrage for um her actual, you know, uh, assumptions and prejudices of, of making that call in the first place and, and the, the, the black body that was in that story. Um, and so I'm just curious if you think that, that, um, do people, you know, think, you know, more highly of, of dogs or animals than they do, uh, people of color. So what's interesting again, with the image of the dog, the ideology of the dog within the racial context is that there is this ambivalence when it comes to how we see dogs. So going back to those protests and launching dogs after black um, recalcitrant subjects is that um, if you think, for example, of 2015, what happened in Ferguson, there was the Department of Justice launched an investigation against the police department. And the report said that every dog bite that was reported from the police the victim was black, was an African-American, every single one. So again, there is this image that dog is a form of weaponry against black uh, rebellion. But at the same time, black um, dog is man's best friend. So you have this ambivalence when you see um, in Cooper of her being a white woman um, with the privilege of being a white woman, just walking her dog like with a man's best friend. Um, so it is a very, of course, uh, the Christian and Amy Cooper um, dynamic is a very interesting one because in that case, the first time that you see, um, it's not the first time, it's one of the times where the idea of a black bird watcher, a black ecologist mm-hmm. came to the forefront. And after that, it became viral. Like um, a lot of people who were black and bird watchers started hashtagging it. So you, uh, you have this dynamic between the two of the animal seen as an enemy and the animal seen as compassion, as human compassion. At the same time, if we start saying that um, this is an incident where you see that animals matter, pets matter more than blacks, we're going back to an old um, pattern of always pitting black subjects, pitting black subjects against animals. And it goes back to Frederick Douglass, who describes that scene of being at the slave auction and being um, assessed, the value being assessed next to an animal. So I think we have to get away from having a competition in terms of rhetoric of what matters most. And this is what Claire uh, Jean King talked about when she talks about this comparison going back to Hurricane Katrina in 2015 when um, we saw pets being rescued by animal rights organizations while uh, blacks were not being rescued. The rescue, yeah. the rescue system failed them. And people started saying, uh, look, pets matter most, more than animals. It's a very valid um, comment that, again, goes back to Frederick Douglass and the auction slave and always being pitted against the animal. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of a um, restrictive way of looking at rights. And so, you know, we've we've talked, I guess, a little bit about uh, 
the way that these these comparisons are made historically and 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 still now um and you know for probably quite obvious reasons that there are is very problematic but do you see any kind of critical value still to be had in in making comparisons between um how black people are treated and how animals are treated do you think that there's something kind of critically fertile there or or is it something that you know people really need to avoid is it is it just reductive well the comparison with this is a tricky thing and i often say that when i teach my students we're trying to discuss a lot about analogy and comparison Afrodog, my book started because of that i started working on it because of that because of a book from 1988 by uh, Spiegel called the dreaded comparison and it's an animal rights book that compares the treatment of black slaves then to the treatment of um, the modern treatment of animals, particularly in an industrial um, context. And the problem that I've seen often with the animal rights context uh, today, um, animal rights activism context, in some of them, not all of them, fortunately, but it's using that comparison as an instrument to advocate for animal rights. So there is an instrumentalization mm. of the black cause to serve another cause. So maybe we have to stay away from that paradigm of analogy and comparison and look more at a sort of interconnectedness, meaning using both causes together to see that every system of oppression is entangled and overlaps more than looking at comparing one cause for the benefit of another and erasing the compare, com, erasing the black cause uh, at, at the benefit of the animal cause. I don't know if it makes sense what I'm saying, but there is no way that we shouldn't look at this interconnectedness because it's how it all started. For example, if you go back to the 18th century, if you go back to Jerry Bentham, for example, this is where animal rights activists often um, start. Jeremy Bentham has a very Bentham, sorry, has a very famous um, note in one of his books where he says, "Look what we've done for um, the abolition of slavery. Now people in England, in particular, are looking at um, the fact that black slavery is is um, is wrong, is ethically wrong because blacks are human and blacks should be treated as such. So now, could we do start doing the same thing with animals?" and see as well that they suffer, that they are sentient and something has to be done for them. So this is this interconnectedness that is actually historical because I think the consciousness, the reckoning of uh, the subjection of um, Blacks happened at the same time as the reckoning for animal rights. And the best historical figure to see this interconnectedness is actually uh, William Wilberforce, who was one of the leaders in England of uh, the animal rights movement, and also one of the leaders of the movement for the abolition of slavery. So yes, there is a connection, there is interconnectedness, but we have to see what we're doing with it today, and maybe stay away from um, demeaning comparisons and analogies. That's, I think it's a really, really great point. And um, I, 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 I want to kind of jump back just a smidge, because you had you'd mentioned one of the things that you um, try and get across to your students and things like that. And so I'm just really curious to hear um, how your work has influenced your teaching in some ways and and maybe some of the ways that you're bringing your work into the classroom. 
one of the because I extended my work uh, to the animal realm, I think one of the important questions that always comes back when I teach and also when I, I write myself in my research is uh, the question of agency and feeling like when it comes to minorities and causes, the fear of speaking on behalf of the other. Mm. And I've seen that coming up with my students. For example, some of my white students feeling shy and just saying in the classroom, or oh, I would just be sitting through your class because I'm afraid to speak up because this is not me. Um, and I've had actually a very heated conversation with students in my classroom where a few um, African-American students complained that the handful of white students sitting in that class were too silent. And this handful of white students tried to say, well, it's because I'm here to learn and I don't know what to say. I don't want to speak. And those uh, students replied, yeah, but I don't want just to be observed. You have to speak up. So I think the same thing happens when we talk about animal studies. It's the question of what kind of agency does your subject matter have and who should be speaking and on behalf of whom? So I try to make sure that there is a sense of um, openness that uh, we are here to try to speak, but not speak on top of the subject and try to leave some uh, space for silence and um, for unanswered questions. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's to another good point to kind of go along with that. And it, it's, you know, um, it maybe, I don't know if it's a fear that, that, you know, all teachers have, but, um, you know, it's especially, you know, when I first started out teaching, um, was one, how do I get all of the students involved? But, um, you know, it, it's, you also have to, to find that, that, that tight line that if you do have students of color, um, you know, their, their voice and their perspective is very, very important. Um, but making sure to not, pinpoint them or call on them or address them as if they are speaking for the entire experience of their um, culture or anything like that. And so I, I think that's an, uh, another, I think, important lesson maybe for some of the white students in there is that, yeah, you're there to observe, but, um, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're understanding that, that their perspectives are also, you know, complex and coming from a, a, an extremely, you don't want to, like, as you said earlier, you don't want to be reductive and just um, oversimplifying those, those things. So. It's very difficult. And I think it's going to get more and more difficult uh, to teach those matters as we get into that era of reckoning and mm-hmm. who gets to speak and how. Right. Just to kind of take a, take a step back and think about um, the the broader context in your experience. So you publish in both English and French, and I'm wondering whether there are any distinctions that you see between um, Anglophone and, and Francophone, either animal studies or black studies or both, or, you know, just kind of how, how you see the kind of academic conversations happening in those different worlds. There is something, I see a similarity between animal studies and black studies um, when you look at the francophone context and the anglophone context is that there is no such thing as um, black studies in the francophone context the way that you have it in America. There is no okay. such thing as the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X hmm. or James Baldwin. Uh, one of the reasons that I've always tried to understand why it didn't happen in the literature of 
the French-speaking world, the way that it happened in America, particularly in France, I want to say in France, because African literature is different, Saharan African literature is different, it's about colonialism. Uh, but when it comes to the Americas and the relation with France, mainland France, you don't have one slave narrative in the French context, the way that you had Frédéric Douglas, for example. Um, and you don't have the civil rights movement. So this organized thought, racial consciousness that you have in America doesn't exist in France. You have piece and bits and pieces when it comes to slavery, but you don't have this organized uh, force. And the same with animal studies in the sense that when it comes to animal rights activism and literature, it started in a Anglophone context. When I mentioned Bedfam, or when I mentioned uh, Wilberforce, those, the abolition, the real movement for the abolition of slavery and animal rights started in England. So it's an Anglophone tradition. And it, the legacy of it, you see it in an Anglophone world. So there is a French um, journalist, a media uh, personality in France called Emery uh, Caron, who tried to bring um, the Anglophone tradition of animal rights literature to a French audience a few years ago, just a few years ago, in a book called Antispecist, which means anti-speciesist. And um, this is, but this is pretty new. So when it comes to the intersection of black studies and animal studies, it is in mainly naturally, organically in an Anglophone context. But it doesn't mean that there are no important, there are no important French speaking uh, books and thoughts that need to be added to that. And this is what I'm trying to do in my book by talking about Derrida, for example. Uh, but even Derrida, Jacques Derrida has a famous iconic text on, on the cat and the existential value of the animal eye looking at the philosopher. But even that, so it's very much existential. It doesn't go into the connections between race and animality, uh, even though he was born and raised in colonial Algeria, but he doesn't go there. Hélène Sixou is another example who talked about the dog and Algeria, colonial Algeria, and she did, she did go there, but there are not many French um, authors who went there that you would see uh, in an Anglophone context. So, so you mentioned um, Bentham and Wilberforce and Derrida. Are there any other um, uh, theorists or scholars, either one that you, that have kind of influenced your work, or two maybe um, people that are interested in this this kind of general um, field that you're working in um, that you would really really recommend that they um, should check out and 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 read or find. Are the, the, when it comes to animal studies, black studies, or the intersection between the two, or in I would say, context? honestly, anything? in anything kind of surrounding, you know, I, I would say especially stuff that's that, that intersection, I think, maybe, um, because I, I think, you know, the, the two fields, you know, have their own individual, you know, kind of scholarship, but but especially, you know, the, maybe those ones that are connecting those two um, that either, again, have been foundational for you or just in general that, that you would really recommend for people to check out. So when it comes to in intersections, there are not many because it's up and coming. There are a lot of up and coming researchers publishing right now as we speak about, about this topic. 
One, uh, I think, strong foundation for me was uh, Claire Jean Kim that I mentioned earlier. I think her work was very much uh, uh, foundational for my own work. Um, when it comes to, um, well, the author uh, who influences my writing, I would have to say James Baldwin. Um, James Baldwin, since the beginning, since I started, I started uh, grad school, I discovered him actually in Paris. Nobody, he was, nobody was talking about him at the time in the 1990s. And I was uh, writing my first graduate thesis and my um, mentor said, why not James Baldwin? Because nobody's talking about him. And he had died in 1987, so maybe seven, eight years before I started working. But he had died in France, but nobody talked about him. And what I like with James Baldwin is um, that there is the question of a legacy of slavery. There is the question of where are we going now? But um, he offers some sorts of solution, not solution, but maybe opening in terms of love and connectedness. And I really like his writing because you feel that love and you, you, you feel those possibilities. And also what I like about James Baldwin is that he's African-American, but he's um, African-American expatriate in France. Mm-hmm. So there is also this global view of the question of, of, of race and racial consciousness, which is exactly the opposite of what I'm doing, but exactly the same. Coming from France and being in America and looking at the racial question from this French perspective. So he was African-American living in France and looking at it from the French perspective, a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that you talked about the way that you kind of like feel the, the, the love and the emotion in his writing. Um, mm-hmm. And... So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you kind of feel about the relations between academia and act- activism, because, you know, I guess we often associate activism with this kind of passionate intensity, whereas academia traditionally might be a bit more kind of stepping back and taking a cooler overview. Like, should it be like this or, you know, should there like should there be more of a, a, a crossover? What What do you kind of think about that? I definitely think there should be more of a crossover. And I think that the style is slowly changing right now when it comes to academia, thanks to the new generation, to the millennium. Um, I think we're getting away from this ivory tower mentality and academic jargon and excellence and elitism. I think that the new generation is able to, to find ways and bridges to work for the community as well and on behalf of the community as well. And this is this is something, I mean, you go through that path and you try to fulfill those milestones as an academic. And I've, I've done that uh, to some extent. And now it is also for me a moment of reckoning. And this is why my new project um, is geared towards a wider community. And I, I don't want to stay within that on the academic circle, because I think we should share ideas and conversations mm-hmm. beyond academia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, especially, uh, you know, you, you use that word reckoning, right? And that, I think that that's something, even in the in the grand context of academia right now, with this virus and um, schools being threatened and, you know, the question of whether or not to reopen, right? That there is this moment that's happening, um, and I think you know it's important to 
to not only consider, you know, you know, academia in the context of health of our, you know, the teachers and the students and staff and all that kind of stuff, but also to think about this moment in terms of, um, you know, when we come back, you know, how can we, we improve that? How can we, we, you know, make academia work for the better for a larger, you know, group and, and in terms of who we're reaching and, and who we're, um, trying to help, um, better either personally or, you know, in their communities and things like that. Yes, for sure. I think just even just the fact that we are going more and more virtual because we have no choice because of the pandemic. It's a way to relate what we do in academia to home. And I think the home is more on our mind now or immediate environment. Mm. And this is a good thing. Mm. Okay. Can I, um, can I ask you a bit more about what you're working on now? I, I said, obviously, when I introduced you that you're working on black freeganism. Uh, what does that mean? Um, and, you know, why, why are you working on it? What's got you interested in that? At the end of uh, AfroDog, I have a little coda. And one of the questions that I ask myself in that coda, coda is, um, who am I to speak on behalf of blacks and animals? Uh, and it's, it's the question that I had while working all along for years on blacks and animals, because you question yourself and not just about not being, uh, not speaking for animals, but also speaking on behalf of blacks. What does black mean? So I decided that my next project would be trying to answer that question. Who am I to have wanted to work on that? So that's why I went back to the personal and to um, try to uh, work on um, how I was raised and why was I interested in those questions. So now, what is black freedom and what is freedom? So freedom is a portmanteau word made of free and vegan, but it doesn't mean that uh, freedom, the freedom is a vegan. What it means is um, freedoms are people who, um, in a strict sense, go dumpster diving and f- try to feed off people's leftovers to avoid waste. So this is the strict sense, but it goes beyond that. The way also I look at it is it's an attitude. It's a lifestyle. It's um, trying to be mindful of others, of the planet, of the environment, uh, and trying to minimize your uh, footprint as well and your consumerist footprint as much as you can. And I was brought up uh, dumpster diving. I was brought up in a family that um, was very much into uh, trying to curb waste, not just for being for the sake of being green, because it was not that much of a movement at the time in the 80s, but more in the sense of trying to be mindful of your spending and having a small budget. And so today, when I see that the green movement expands so much, I'm going back to the organic way that my parents were uh, green without being conscious of being green in that sense. It was just an organic Mm -hmm. way of being with waste. And um, I also go back to uh, how this framed my my identity, shaped my identity, um, but also how it shaped my identity as um, a so-called black person. I say so-called because in France, I wasn't raised thinking I was black. Um, I was biracial, which is very different, but that's a long, that's a long story that I, I explained <laughs> as well in the book. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I think that's, you know, that, that, that does 
do it about uh, our time right now. So I, I do want to, um, before we, we kind of let you go, uh, we have to move on to our let's end on a roll. So uh, I've okay. got a 12-sided die here, and uh, I'm just going to roll at random. And uh, whichever question comes up, that's the one that we're going to go ahead and uh, hear a little bit more about you for. So the question is okay. going to be... Oh, this actually, you know what? This is a good question, um, especially with kind of the, the, the state of the world right now. Um, so this question is, what has you most excited or hopeful right now, uh, either scholarly or in the world in general? So what are, what are you most seeing? What's giving you the most optimism, whether it's someone's scholarly work or just, you know, something that's happening in the world that's making you feel a little bit better? Uh, so what I'm hopeful about is what I'm seeing in the streets right now, seeing this new generation mainly, and um, new generation that is not just black, but also white students coming together, as Jim Fordian would have said, and going to the streets and wanting change, and are ready for change, are ready to raise anything for change in solidarity. And when I see that, I'm very hopeful for, for the future, because I think the new gener- generation is going to change the direction of the way things are going in this country. So I'm really investing in them. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a good, I think a good note, good note to end on. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. It was great to hear about you and, and all of your work. Oh, thank yeah. you. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Benedict. It's been a yeah. lot of Is fun. there any, Oh, sorry, Gemma. Uh, is there anything that, you know, uh, you want us to, anything else you were hoping to share or maybe didn't have a chance to, to say that you'd, you'd like for our listeners to know? Mm, I don't think so. I think it was a good okay. conversation. Yeah. I enjoyed right. it. Awesome. Um, so, uh, is there anywhere in particular, uh, maybe that people can, can connect with you, uh, whether social media or uh, a website or anything like that, where they can, can find out more about you or your work? I am not good with social media. This is something I have to work on. So besides the University of Michigan uh, page, web page, um, but I'm work- I-, I promised myself I would work on it. I will try to be more <laughs> visible. Oh, hey, no, no, no problem. Yeah, well, make sure you <laughs> check out, um, you know, both the, the upcoming book and, and your previous work for sure. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us and thank you all for, for tuning in and listening. Uh, if you have an idea for an episode, uh, whether you yourself want to share some of your work or you would like for us to reach out to somebody, you can email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle there is at asley underscore ecocast. Um, you can find me on Twitter if you would like to at, uh, B Galm, B E G A L M Gemma. Um, and I am at geo rights. That's G E O W R I T E S. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much everybody. And until next time, this has been Asley Ecocast. Bye. <laughs>